Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 will be the psalm that we're in this morning as we uh, bring our time in book one of of the psalms to a conclusion. And uh, just a heads up, if you want to be reading ahead, we'll be in Colossians uh, next week. So we'll be going to the New Testament and um, you can start reading there. We'll be going very slowly as well. So if you just want to read a few verses, that'll probably be sufficient. (laughs) But this morning we're in uh, Psalm 41, and um, you'll notice here, this is also a a psalm of David to the choir master, and we'll begin by uh, reading the whole psalm uh, together. Uh, So David writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, beginning in verse 1, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, You made promises to Your servant and Your King, David, that You would establish His throne forever that you would give him rest from his enemies, that as your anointed king, he would prosper in all that he does. 
And based upon these promises, he knew that even in the midst of great affliction and sorrow, even in the midst of times when he was utterly desperate, crying out to you, praying to you, lamenting, he knew ultimately that you would be faithful to your word and that his enemies would never triumph over him because he had you as his God. And Lord David, we see from your word was but a foretaste of the greater king to come who in the same way would have victory, would triumph over all his enemies. You sent your precious Son, the Son of God, the King of kings, into the world to accomplish your will. And because you loved him and he loved you, what was certain is that no matter what enemies came against him, even death itself, he would rise and triumph over his enemies. And it is because of this, Lord, because of the faithfulness you have displayed towards your King, that we can have life in his name. So I pray, Lord, that as we conclude our time this morning in the Psalms, that you would help us to see more of the glory of Christ and his victory over all enemies. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has uh, been said before that Christianity is a religion of propositional truth. It is founded upon, it is grounded in truth, claims of historical fact. It is not a legend, it is not a myth or a story that we just tell ourselves to give us happy thoughts about the world. It is not merely even a way of life. Christianity at its core is doctrinal. Truth claims are made. Jesus died for sinners. That's a truth claim. Everything written about him in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's a truth claim. On the third day, he rose from the grave in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a truth claim. Claims are made, and these truth claims are believed on, are accepted, and are to be confessed. And that is doctrine. In fact, when the New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machen wrote his defense of the Christian faith against the rise of Protestant liberalism 
in the early 20th century. And liberalism's assertion that Christianity was only a way of life. Machen said this. He said, if any one fact is clear, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, not upon a mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. And part of becoming a disciple of Christ and then growing as a disciple of Christ is that you must learn the doctrines of the faith. You must learn the message upon which the life is founded upon. And sometimes, many times in fact, this comes in the form of a message that is proclaimed and that is taught. In order to become a Christian, of course, it is the case that you must hear the Gospel. The, the message must be taught to you, must be declared to you. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? They must hear something. And you must hear the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And about how He came to save sinners like you. And you must believe it, and you must confess it. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, as Scripture says. So, often, we learn doctrine through a message, through words, through something being communicated through one person to another. But the Lord has also made us such creatures that we also learn doctrine by examples. We are not just computers who need the right information downloaded into us, and now we're, we're good. We have all of the, the information we need. Now we also, we also need to see. What does this look like? What does this doctrine, what does this truth of Christianity, this truth of the Gospel look like? How are these truths to be lived out? And the Lord gives us a variety of ways to learn by example. For one thing, He gives us the church. He gives us the people of God. The people of God are to be visible examples of Christ-exalting, gospel-adorning living. That's one of the primary functions 
of the church. This is why the book of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders and those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He's saying you should be able to look and see how your leaders are living and do that. Live likewise. Or this is why Paul says in Titus chapter 2 that the older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Right? The, the church needs older women to bring the younger women under them and show them this is what the Gospel looks like in the home, in your family, with your children. Observe and see and put this into practice. And of course, this requires also that the young women are seeking that and are willing to humble themselves to learn from those older than they. The church is supposed to be comprised of a people who can not only with their mouths teach what is true, but they can also say, and this is what it looks like. So do this. But the Lord not only gives us examples from the body and from the church, but he also gives us examples from his word. Examples of the lives of the people of God from the past. Again, the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 12, gives the exhortation to the, to the people of God and the author's writing to, gives the, the exhortation to them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And in the context of that charge, he's talking about Old Testament examples. Abraham specifically. So he's calling the people of God to look into the Old Testament and remember the lives of the saints of old and imitate them. Assuming, of course, that you are imitating what is good and righteous about them. You are to look at these various men and women in the Scriptures who are presented as examples to be followed and you are to imitate them. There is something about their lives that will probably end up being reflected in your own. And in the psalm that we're in this morning, we find that David is presenting himself as one of those great examples to be followed. Now, historically, we know that David was, of course, the king of Israel. He was anointed by God to rule over God's people. 
And as the king of Israel, David is the representative of God on the earth. Israel's king was not like other kings. Israel's king was especially tasked with knowing the law of God inside and out, front to back, having it buried deep within his heart and always on his mind so that as he ruled over Israel, his rule would reflect the perfect will of God for the nation. And so if you had lived in Israel under David's kingship, there's a very real sense in which you should have been able to look at David's life and imitate him as he was imitating God. You could look at him and you could say of that man, this is a man who fears the Lord and who does the Word of God, who keeps the commandments of God, and therefore, I will live like Him. I will do what He does. I will imitate Him. And David, for his part, David understood this role. He knew that he was the Lord's anointed. He knew that he was a prophet, and therefore, an example for the people of God. And so as the psalm begins by speaking of the one who is blessed by God, what becomes very evident by the time you get to the end of the psalm is that David is presenting himself as the example of the blessed man. He is the pattern. He is the template of the blessed man who is to be imitated by the people of God. In other words, when we read these opening lines, blessed is the one who considers the poor. You ought not to think immediately that this is just a general statement about anyone. Anyone who considers the poor is blessed. Within the context of the psalm, you need to recognize that this first and foremost is referring to David himself as the king of Israel and the Lord's representative ruler. And then, by extension, it refers to all God's people who follow David's Example. And the reason why we know that David is here, the exemplar of the blessed man, is because the characteristics of the blessed man in verses 1 to 3 are characteristics that describe him in other parts of the same psalm. So, for example, if you look with me for a moment at verse 1, verse 1 says, of the blessed man that the Lord delivers him. And if you look down in verse 12, you find that David speaks of the Lord 
delivering him, ultimately from his enemies who are against him. He says, but you have upheld me because of my integrity, because of his innocence, and set me in your presence forever. They were saying of him, you will never rise. You will die and you will stay dead. And he's saying, the Lord upholds me. The Lord delivers me. Or if you look at verse 2, Verse 2 says of the blessed man that the Lord does not give him up to the will of his enemies. And then in verse 11, David says there, my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Or verse 3, it says there of the blessed man that the Lord sustains him on his sickbed and in his illness you restore him to full health. And then in verse 4, we find David drawing from that very sickness and illness idea in his prayer for healing because of sin. He says, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. Right? Restore me to health, for I have sinned against you. And so David, as king, is the example of the blessed man. He is the one who illustrates in his own life what the blessed man's life should and will look like to some degree. And if we pause for a moment, and we take a step back, and we take a bird's eye view of what we've seen so far in the Psalms, this truth becomes an important bookend for us as we conclude book one of the Psalms. In the same way that book one of the Psalms began, you'll remember, by considering the blessed man, with Psalm 1 saying, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So also does book one conclude by considering the blessed man. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And when you put these psalms together, they give us a fuller, more complete picture of the life of the blessed man. And just as a reminder, you'll remember that Psalm 1 was ultimately about the ideal king who also serves as the example for all God's people. The Psalm 1 blessed man is the same person as the Psalm 2 son of God who's been enthroned on God's holy hill. And when we read Psalm 1, we are told that this blessed man who is a kingly figure prospers in all that he does. And this could, we weren't careful, we weren't reading all of Scripture, this could give us the impression that his life is just a straight line up. Just success after success after success. Never any sorrow, never any suffering. 
But when we read that psalm, when we read Psalm 1 in light of the others that follow, and when we read it in light of this final psalm of Book 1, we get a fuller picture. Yes, there is prosperity for the blessed man. Yes, there is triumph. Yes, the blessed king will be blessed in all that he does. Yes, he will have the favor of God always resting upon him. But the path we find to his triumph and to his victory will come with some dark, deep valleys. And it is these dark valleys that David spends most of his time describing in this psalm. Again, the psalm opens with the message, blessed is the one who considers, who gives special attention to the poor. And here, the poor has its broadest meaning. It's not just poor in terms of financially, but it can refer to any kind of sickly or weak or helpless state. The same word is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe sick and emaciated livestock, right? Livestock that are supposed to be plump and fat and are now just skinny and have no meat on them at all. It's a state of utter helplessness. So we might say that blessed is the one who considers the the afflicted. And soon after this, we discover that it is none other than David himself who is a poor, afflicted man. He is the king, no doubt. But he is the suffering king. And he describes his sufferings. He describes what makes him a poor man in verses 4 to 9. For one thing, he has sin. He has sin that's troubling him, a plague to him. He sinned against the Lord. Again, he says in verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. He's a poor man. He's a sick man. He's a desperate man because he is a sinful man. And in this respect, in this respect, he's an example for you and me. Because you also are sinful. He is an example of one who knows and sees and understands his own sin and how it is brought an offense to his glorious God. And you also, like Him, are in need of God's grace always. You are in need of His grace, not just to forgive you and to wipe the slate clean, as it were, but to heal you, to restore you, to pull you out of the pit of destruction and place your feet upon a solid rock. If you truly know that you are a sinner, 
and that you have sinned against God, and if you truly desire the Lord's grace and communion with Him, then you have to understand that that grace and forgiveness is transformative in nature. It's not just this, this grace that says, okay, your, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin more. It works. It's a power. It's a cleansing. It washes you new. It makes you a different person. Again, the grace of God is not just a rubber stamp that dismisses your guilt and gives a license for continued sin. It changes you. It produces the real fruit of holiness and a godly life. We read earlier from the Gospel of Luke, right? Where Jesus is, is talking about a good tree producing good fruit and a bad tree producing bad fruit. By nature, you're a bad tree. <laughs> and you can't change yourself into becoming a good tree. You must be made something different. You must be uprooted and planted as something different. You must become a good tree so that good fruit comes from your heart and from your life. And that's what the grace of God does for sinners. He makes us something new. Which is why J.C. Ryle once said, that sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. Have you truly repented? Are you turning from your sin? Do you hate your sin? You're gouging out your eye to get rid of that sin because you love the Lord and no longer want to dishonor Him. That repentance is evidence of true forgiveness. God's grace makes you a person who wants to sin no more. Because you see and you've come to recognize that sin destroys you. It takes everything. Always. Sin takes everything that God makes as good and it distorts it and corrupts it. Perverts it. And you recognize that. And you no longer desire what is perverted. You no longer desire to dishonor God. But to please Him. And to walk in communion with Him. David was a poor man who knew he was a sinner. And so the first thing he does is to pray to the Lord for His grace and His healing work. But we also find that he is afflicted because he has enemies who are actively working and plotting and conspiring against him for his downfall. They want him dead. They're asking, when will he die? When will his name perish? And more than that, they're not just curious about when this will happen. They're actively working towards it. They're plotting his downfall. 
They are the Psalm 2 verse 1 peoples and nations who rage and who plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed. And David is the anointed. He's the king. And they want the king dead. And so naturally, he's troubled. And he's heartbroken over their scheming. He has to listen to them. Speak to him as if they truly care about him. He has to listen to them. Speak to him with double tongues while they plot behind his back. He says in verse 6 that they come to Him speaking empty words. They're syllables. They're, They're coming out of the mouth and they're communicating nothing of truth because inwardly they believe the exact opposite of what they're saying of Him. They're speaking empty words and yet their heart gathers iniquity. What comes out of the mouth isn't true. They're liars. And they hate David, even though he's innocent, even though he has not sinned against them or wronged them. He's not worthy of their scorn, and yet they're pronouncing curses against him. They consider him to be a man, in fact, who is rejected by God. They believe themselves to have God on their side while they're working For his downfall, they say in verse 8, a deadly thing is poured out on him. And there's an interesting wordplay here. The word for deadly is Belial. It's a word that often means throughout the Old Testament, useless or worthless or deadly. Of course, it's also a proper name for Satan. It's as if the enemies are considering the king cursed and rejected by God because he's actually son of the devil. And so what do they believe about him? Verse 8 again, that he will die and he will not rise again from where he lies. And to make matters worse, these enemies of David are not just people from a distant land. These are not people who are nameless and faceless in his mind or people that he barely knows. These enemies are his friends. They're people he trusted. They're people he cared for. Like his son, Absalom. Like his closest counselor, Ahithophel. The dagger in David's heart is deeper because it's coming from those whom He loved and trusted and who were closest to Him. He says in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted His heel against me. And remember, David understands himself to be an example. In some way, his own experience testifies to the kinds of things that all God's people will likely have to endure. Which makes it all the more significant when we think about 
the life of Christ, who is the true King. He comes to His own, right? He comes to His own people, His own covenant people, and His own received Him not. He works miracles. He heals. He does good. He restores the sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He raises the dead to new life. He casts out demons from those who were oppressed by demons. He is doing nothing but good. Proclaiming the glories of the Gospel of the Kingdom. And what are they saying of Him? Oh, He's doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. He's the son of the devil. He's the son of Belial. He's a man rejected by God. And on the evening of the Passover, when his closest disciples were gathered together and he was washing their feet and to serve one another and teaching them that they will be blessed if they do, sitting among them was a man named Judas. And Jesus knew that this man, one of his close disciples, would betray him. And he said, I'm not speaking of all of you. When he's talking about those who will be blessed if they imitate him, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Quoting Psalm 41, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. David's example was to be fulfilled to an even greater extent in the life of Christ. And in a very real sense, friends, this is also quite common, a quite common lot to those who are and who will be disciples of Christ. At some point, if you follow Jesus long enough you yourself will know something of this pain. You will know what this feels like of those closest to you turning against you. Sometimes it may come from within your own family. Jesus said in Matthew 10, for example, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever loves father or mother, he says, more than me is not worthy of me. Now, he is not saying that all families are going to be conflicted over him as a guarantee. It is truly a wonderful and a blessed thing when whole families love the Lord together. But this can often be the case. I would venture to say that's the vast majority of cases. 
You can just think of a, of a common example of, say, a Muslim person who's heard the gospel. Their whole family are Muslims. You reject that and you accept Christ, you're going to have problems. Even within our own culture, we have all kinds of nominal Christianity. People who think they're Christians and don't know the Lord. And when you embrace the Lord and you start really living like the Gospel calls you to live, it's probably going to bring a sword to the house. A conflict over who the real Jesus is and what He calls us to do. Sometimes this affliction may come from those that you know closely from your surrounding community. This happened with the Thessalonian Christians whom Paul said suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. Just like the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were suffering at the hands of their, their fellow men, their fellow Jews, so also did this happen with the Thessalonians. And sometimes it may come even from among professing believers in Christ. Right? One need only think about the sad example of Demas, a long-time co-laborer with the Apostle Paul in the work of the Gospel. They had suffered together, probably been beaten together. They had been in all kinds of trials together. Paul says, the end of his life, of Demas, writing to Timothy, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. The road that leads to the crown is also a road that comes with a cross. But when this happens, friends, I say this to you, so that you will take heart and be encouraged that you will remember that you do not serve a king and a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Because Jesus Himself has known this very affliction and is therefore the best one to minister to you when that happens, He's the one who can strengthen, who can say, yes, this is, this is the cross. And on the other side of the cross is a crown. Come and follow Me. But of course, the psalm doesn't end, doesn't end on this note of affliction. It ends, in fact, with triumph. With the crown. It ends with the Lord's deliverance and His protection coming to the blessed man. As David considers this current plight of his, he entrusts himself to God and he lifts up a prayer. His enemies consider him as good as dead. He will not rise again 
from where he lies, they say. And so David, in response, prays to the Lord for a kind of figurative resurrection. They're saying, you're dead, David. You're not going to rise. And he's saying to the Lord, Lord, raise me up. Give me victory. He says in verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. David was, of course, not literally dead. But his enemies considered him as good as dead as they turned against him. And so he's speaking figuratively here. But whereas this was for David a kind of figurative resurrection, it was very much so a literal resurrection for Christ. Christ Himself was, of course, counted among the dead. He was dead. Very much so. Really dead. And His enemies made sure of it. They crucified Him. And they pierced Him in His side, ensuring that there was no more breath coming from His lungs. And they mocked Him. And they said to Him, He saved others, but He can't save Himself. Just like David's enemies here. He will not rise again from where He lies. He's rejected. He's a son of Beelzebub. But Christ trusted Himself like David before Him to His Father. And on the third day, the Father raised Him up. And this was His triumph over the grave. And this was His triumph over His enemies. This was the blessed man not being given up to the will of His enemies. I want you to notice further that David prays here, raise me up that I may repay them. Raise me up that I may repay them. David, as the anointed king, you'll remember, was also the instrument of God's judgment. He's the king. This is no democracy. He's the judge, jury, and executioner. The, if evil it, throughout the land of Israel was committed, and especially if it was committed against him, the Lord's king, he was the one who was given authority to wield the sword and execute judgments in the land. And that's what he's praying for here. Raise me up. Restore me. Deliver me from the hands of the enemy. Deliver me from these wicked men. Why? For what purpose? To carry out judgment against the ungodly and the traitors and the wicked in the land to purge the land from the evil that saturated it to repay them. That was the responsibility of the king. 
Right? This is not a prayer, just, this is not a request of his that is just a matter of personal vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. As Deuteronomy 32 says. But in the kingdom of Israel, that divine vengeance, that sword, was invested into the hands of the king. He was the one who carried it out. And so David's figurative resurrection results in his triumph over his enemies and judgment being carried out against them. And in much the same way, friends, what David was as the king of Israel, Christ is as the king of all creation. When God raised him up from the dead, literally and not figuratively, he exalted him at his right hand and over all his enemies, and he has invested within him the authority to judge, the authority to repay. In fact, the resurrection of Christ signifies His triumph over enemies and the guarantee that He will repay on the day of judgment. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul proclaimed to the men of Athens to the pagan unbelievers who had never heard of Christ before in their lives. When Paul went preaching, the first thing he said to people was not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It was a little bit more confrontational. He proclaimed the message of the exalted King. He proclaimed what Scripture calls the Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel message about Him who has been exalted over all and now demands allegiance, trust from all. He said in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31, that God is now commanding all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He raises him up so that the enemies at the appointed time will be repaid. Christ has a day when as the king, he will repay and his enemies will not triumph over him. He is set in the presence of of God, His Father, forever. And while that day remains yet to have come, while the day of His recompense is still in the future, the King extends an olive branch of grace 
to all. This is the time where the terms of peace are being offered. This is the time in which he is declaring to the world, you've lost. The devil has lost. Death has lost. No man, no kingdom will triumph over me. I've conquered the grave. Now, surrender and come in to the glory of my kingdom. Now is a time when grace is being extended to all. If you're an enemy of Christ, you do not have to remain an enemy of Christ. Nor should you. It is a losing battle. If you want to hold on to your sin, if you want to remain as you are, defiant until the end, you can certainly do that. That's your prerogative. You're allowed to do that. But you will find yourself in the end on the wrong side of the sword. But if you will humble yourself, and if you will simply approach the king and say with David, Lord, be gracious to me. I have sinned against you. Though you may have a broken heart and tears and shame and much grace, though it may be incredibly difficult to humble yourself before the Lord, He will save you. That's the news. That's what the King has promised to his enemies now. You do not have to be repaid with the sword. There's another repayment he can give. There's another act that he can do on the basis of what he has done on the cross and the resurrection. He can wash you. He can restore you. He can make you new. He can give you a new heart. He can change your spots to be as white as snow. And He can give you an inheritance of eternal life and of glory and of the world in His presence forever and ever. And you will no longer be called an enemy, but you will be called a child and a friend and a brother. And your place will not be cast out into utter darkness, but you will be made an heir of His kingdom. And you will sing forever with David here, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That is a glory.
of glory that the risen King gives to sinners like you and me. So all we have to do is come to Him, trust in Him, and we will live with Him forever. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, you are a good God, and you have done so many wondrous works, and the wisdom that surpasses all knowledge to be a God who is righteous and just, to be a God who rightly hates sin, and yet at the same time, in your wisdom, you have worked a great work by which sinners like us can be reconciled to you, pardoned completely, and made heirs of your kingdom. Oh, the depths, oh, the riches, Oh, the breaths and the heights. We praise you, God. And we are grateful for your mighty work in Christ. And I pray for all who are here that we would take hold of the olive, olive branch from the King and be saved and be made like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.